Hello and welcome to A Worlds to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I'm joined by Anna Kasparian, host and executive producer for The Young Turks and now host of Jacobin's Weekend series. We discuss the media landscape in the US and the importance of alternative media to building the socialist movement, the progress towards a stimulus package in the US, and how progressives should relate to a Biden presidency. As always, a shout out to our amazing patrons. Thank you so much for helping us to reach the crucial £1,000 per month threshold. We're going to need more support if we're going to keep growing. If you've been considering becoming a patron for a while but haven't gotten around to it, please consider doing so now. Just hit pause and head over to patreon.com slash a world to win pod. If you become a patron, you'll get access to exclusive content, including the full hour-long episode this week and full-length interviews with figures like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, as well as a chance to influence the future direction of the show. If you want to support the show in another way, please do give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. A big thank you as always to the Lipman Miliband Trust for awarding us the grant funding we've needed to bring you these first episodes. You can follow them on Twitter at Lipman Miliband. And another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. Now here is Anna Kasparian on the massive increases in COVID-19 infections in the US over the last few weeks. Hello, Anna Kasparian, and thank you so much for joining me on A World to Win. Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to start, as always, by talking about some um, news stories. The first one is from CNN, and it's the US sees its deadliest COVID-19 week since April. So the US surpassed 15 million total reported COVID-19 infections on Tuesday, and daily deaths neared a record level. So when this comes out, um, it will be, you know, this will be a bit later, but today is, is the 8th of December. I mean, what do you make of all this, Anna? Because it seems like the government isn't even really trying now that we have this vaccine news and given that Trump knows he's on the way out. Well, I think your analysis is is correct. Uh, Trump was barely making an effort in responding to this pandemic prior to the election. And now that he's lost his reelection bid, um, he's completely MIA. Uh, he doesn't even hide the fact that he doesn't seem to care very much about how this pandemic is just ripping through the country, killing hundreds of thousands of Americans on a weekly basis. He has absolutely no motivation or political incentive, really, to pass any type of economic relief or stimulus uh, for Americans who are forced to go into a second round of stay-at-home orders or business lockdowns. And so there has been, honestly, uh, a unique failure on behalf of the United States government in responding to this pandemic. And I say unique because if you look at the numbers per capita, we're doing so poorly, even compared to countries that have far less resources than we do. And so at this point, the culture has really turned into this every man for themselves mentality. And I I hate to say it, but even I'm engaging in that because I feel that I have no other choice. So all I can really do is control the environment, my immediate environment, and do what I can to encourage my family members to listen to the advice of actual health experts who say that you need to stay home, uh, socially distance, wear a mask. 
all you can do is just try to keep yourself and your family members safe at this point. And this really does breed more distrust toward the government because the government just refuses to do what's necessary in, in leading the country in a better direction in responding to this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, that point about trust is so important. It really feels like I've seen it said by some people that this is like, you know, the period between now and the vaccine is like the period in a conflict between like the declaration of a ceasefire and when that actually like the killing actually stops. It's just there's like all these avoidable deaths that are going to happen during this period that just wouldn't have to happen. You know, federal government has been incredibly shameful in both its response to the pandemic, but also in its uh, failure to pass another round of stimulus. But I don't want anyone to, you know, be under the assumption that all of my critique is geared toward the Republican Party. The Democratic Party has been shameful as well. I mean, we'll talk about it in more detail in just a minute, but Nancy Pelosi's political calculations on stimulus has been just absolutely embarrassing and abysmal. And then when you look at local politicians on the Democratic side, uh, there's been a lack of leadership in that regard as well. Governor Gavin Newsom from California, for instance, uh, on one hand, will tell Americans they need to stay home. He'll demand that businesses shut down. But at the same time, he's you know seen at uh, this elite restaurant in Northern California called the French Laundry, enjoying a nice dinner with lobbyists. And it doesn't seem like he's taking the pandemic seriously. And so the fish really does rot from the head down. If our local and federal politicians refuse to take a leadership role and lead by example, well, that message trickles down to Americans who think, well, is this real? Is it a hoax? Should I take it seriously? Uh, you know, we're seeing, let's say, hair salons shut down around us. We're seeing businesses shut down around us. But at the same time, certain businesses that Gavin Newsom's invested in, his own winery, for instance, was able to remain open during lockdown. And so those types of incidents message all the wrong things to Americans who, quite honestly, at this point, for understandable reasons, do have fatigue in regard to this pandemic. Uh, they want any excuse to uh, live normal lives. And if they see leadership not take this seriously and essentially be out and about when they're telling average Americans to stay home, well, they're going to use that as an example or as an excuse to not listen to social distancing guidelines. Yeah, I mean, it does. It's the same, I think, in the UK. It feels like there's one rule for the elite and another rule for everyone else. And you mentioned the stimulus program. We've got this next story from the FT here saying, New U.S. stimulus bill could come as early as Monday. So there's uh, $288 billion in small business aid, $180 billion in employment benefits, some money for cash-strapped state and local governments, um, and some specific funds to like troubled uh, industrial sectors. I mean, given the scale of the crisis that is being faced by many working families in the U.S. at the moment, with kind of evictions looming, with you know debt payments, with huge numbers of people unemployed, this just doesn't seem even remotely enough. And it's also obviously mainly focused on channeling funding to, to businesses. Should the Dems be supporting this at all? Do they have a choice? Well, as I mentioned earlier, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi squandered her opportunity to use whatever leverage House Democrats had to secure approval for a far more robust 
piece of legislation that was prior to the election happening when Donald Trump realized that, hey, maybe passing stimulus, uh, passing something that actually does provide financial relief to Americans could help me with my chances of getting reelected. Now, the political calculation that Nancy Pelosi made at the time was helping Donald Trump in any way with his reelection bid is not worth it. So she sacrificed the best interests of the American people at a time when they're suffering in order to carry out her political calculation. Now, Pelosi has essentially no leverage whatsoever. And the truth is Donald Trump really doesn't have any incentive to pass stimulus. He's on his way out. He doesn't care. Everything he does is really self-interested. And so the bipartisan bill that you were referring to, uh, which is about $900 billion, as opposed to the $1.8 trillion that Donald Trump was advocating for prior to the election, is not even close to enough. In fact, it can be incredibly damaging if you read the fine print. So here's what we don't know. We don't know if it offers any type of protections for Americans facing eviction. What we do know is that this bipartisan bill does not provide uh, one-time checks to Americans. Uh, the CARES Act, which was the one of the rounds of stimulus that actually did pass, did offer $1,200 checks to Americans in addition to a more robust unemployment program that would add an additional $600 per week for Americans who have been laid off as a result of the pandemic. This new bill only offers $300 per week, which is something. It's something. But it could actually be an incredibly damaging piece of legislation because of this Honestly, this must-have provision that Republicans have been fighting for, which would clear any company of liability if their employees get sick during the pandemic. And this is problematic because if you look at specific cases in the United States, for instance, the Tyson meatpacking plant, the way that they've treated their employees during this pandemic is absolutely disgusting and shameful. And they're now facing lawsuits as a result of dozens of their employees dying from this meatpacking plant. So uh, they're facing these wrongful death lawsuits. And when you read the details of what the workers are alleging and what the family members of the workers who uh, passed away are alleging, it's that the employers were upstairs taking bets on how many of their employees would get sick and eventually die. So they are very well aware of how serious this pandemic is. They don't want to spend the money necessary to provide social distancing and the protective gear necessary to avoid community spread of this virus. And so what we're seeing with corporations in America right now is they're they're you know, they're one trick ponies. They're relying on the exact same lobbying efforts they've relied on in the past, which is, hey, rather than regulating us, Rather than holding us accountable for how terrible we are toward our employees, let's just make some campaign donations and ensure that the Republican Party fights hard enough to clear us of any liability. That could be absolutely disastrous for employees and uh, the family members of employees who have died as a result of the negligence that we've seen carried out by these corporations. The next story that we have here is about um, the team that Joe Biden is putting together to, well, perhaps, perhaps not deal with all of these issues. So it's again, a story from the FT. The nominees include Janet Yellen, former Fed chair as Treasury Secretary, Neera Tanden, former senior aide to Hillary Clinton and the president for the Center for American Progress think tank. 
What do you think of all of these proposed announcements? I mean, I can probably guess, but I want to hear you uh, talk a little bit about some of these names and what they might mean for the nature of a Biden presidency. Well, let me start off with a positive note because uh, my answer is going to mostly be negative toward (laughs) the nominees from the Biden campaign. So uh, one piece of positive news finally broke yesterday when the Biden campaign announced that California's attorney general, Javier Becerra, will be uh, chosen or nominated, I should say, to lead the Department of Health and Human Services. He's a promising pick because of his pretty long record supporting uh, Medicare for All or a single-payer healthcare system. He's also been on the record uh, fighting the Obama administration to lower the prices of pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, he has consistently been against cutting taxes for the wealthy or cutting taxes or cutting funding, I should say, for uh, Social Security and Medicare. So I was elated when that was announced and after I did you know, my due diligence in looking into his record. Um, of course, no one's perfect, but out of all the other nominees that we've heard of so far, Javier Becerra seems to be the best. Now, when we move on to uh, the financial sector and uh, the Office of Management and Budget, Neera Tandon is a disgrace, and it's disgraceful that uh, Joe Biden would nominate her for this role. Uh, She is the president of the Center for American Progress, which was founded by John Podesta. And what these think tanks essentially do is serve as laundromats for political corruption. And so that organization, the Center for American Progress, or CAP, has been funded by the UAE. It's been funded by individuals who very much have a vested interest in perpetuating war abroad. It's been funded by massive corporations. In fact, under her watch, the Center for American Progress created a program that essentially got all of these business leaders together. And it's all about trading funding for favors. And so what the Mm. Center for American Progress does, much like many other think tanks in the United States, is use some of the money uh, that's been paid to them through these donors, who, of course, have their own vested interests, uh, to lobby for all sorts of policies that are harmful to the American people. Uh, That includes wars abroad. That includes cuts to Social Security and Medicare, something that Neera Tandon herself advocated for uh, in 2010 and 2012. And so I'm, I'm definitely concerned about that pick. And oddly enough, the political party that might possibly save us from Neera Tandon heading the Office of Management and Budget is the Republican Party because she's been so combative toward pretty much everyone other than corporate Democrats on Twitter that they're unlikely to uh, confirm her. But she could be replaced with someone worse. So Mm -hmm. I'm really worried about what happens in regard to that agency. Janet Yellen, I'm a little mixed on because she seems to at least acknowledge and understand the importance of uh, jobs in America and how Mm -hmm. these corporations typically do not use their tax cuts in order to create new jobs. However, when it comes to the Federal Reserve just printing money and Mm -hmm. handing it over to banks, she was very much on board for that. Uh, She refused to raise interest rates even a little bit until 2015. And what that has done is artificially inflate the markets, which I don't really care too much about, with the exception of all these average Americans who have their retirement accounts invested in the stock market, which is, again, artificially inflated by easy money 
that companies and banks have been able to receive from the Federal Reserve. Yeah, I mean, Yellen is an interesting one because um, to me, she seems like a, a classic kind of neoliberal, neoclassical economist mm-hmm. who you're completely right, has been totally on board with all of the Fed's actions during her tenure there. It's going to be interesting to see how she will try and manage the economy as uh, as Treasury Secretary. I can't see that she would be that much different. I mean, I can't imagine like Trump was actually a remarkably fiscally lax president. If you look at the kind of levels of what you could call stimulus in terms of tax cuts, they were pretty huge under under Trump. So it is going to be interesting to see the extent to which there is really any change on the economic front. And obviously, you know, we've obviously still got the Federal Reserve now pumping tons and tons and tons and tons of money into loads of different markets. And we have no idea what the long-term impact of that is going to be either. So she doesn't fill me with that much hope either, to be honest. (laughs) Well, you know, just to add a little more to this discussion regarding what's likely to happen with fiscal policy and the economy, uh, one other huge area of concern I have is in regard to one of Biden's close staffers who's worked with him since the early 1990s. Her name is Cynthia Hogan. And Mm. what she has actually done um, since the Obama years is uh, work at Apple as uh, their top lobbyist to lobby on behalf of basically Donald Trump's tax cuts. So she uh, took a leadership role at Apple uh, to ensure that the Trump era tax cuts uh, in 2017 would pass because, of course, it benefited Apple. It benefited most major companies, uh, most major corporations, because it did, in fact, cut the corporate tax rate. And it did not close any corporate tax loopholes Mm -hmm. or, you know, some of these deductions that these corporations are able to take. So the fact that, you know, we have this revolving door of politics is just it's disgusting because you end up with politicians who have no interest in real leadership, who have no interest in representing the best, what's best for the American people. It's all about backroom deals, favors for favors. How can we make more money? And really at this point, we should not have any congressional lawmakers invested in individual stocks, number one. Mm. Number two, we should not allow lobbyists to serve as staffers in any administration, period. But, you know, to get that accomplished, I feel, you know, we just have a long way to go. And it's it's just sad because this is how politics works. This is why, regardless of what Americans want based on polling, regardless of how popular single-payer healthcare is in this country, we're going to keep running into a wall with all of this corruption that takes place behind the scenes because everyone is self-interested with a few exceptions in our federal government. And that is hindering any type of positive Mm -hmm. change in the country, which is why really elections might be one way, um, just one facet in this bigger scheme in, in changing the country. But really, I think the bulk of the action does need to come from workers who challenge capital. That's really the only way to do it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, And I want to talk about all of those things as we move into the next section of the show. But before I do that, I want you to talk to me a little bit about yourself and how you got into progressive politics. And as I ask all my guests who come on the show, how did you become a socialist? 
so I became very close with uh, Michael Brooks, who tragically passed away mm-hmm. uh, this year, um, made this awful year only a thousand times worse. Yeah. Uh, but he was one of those rare, I mean, I don't know if I can name anyone else, uh, you know, who has this characteristic of being able to persuade you uh, without making you feel judged about Hmm. what you don't know or what your, you know, initial opinions were or what your initial ideology was. And I think, you know, I'm so grateful that we became close because, what Michael Brooks managed to do was kind of get me out of a bubble. And I have, I have been in a bubble, you know, as someone who's worked at the Young Turks uh, for nearly 14 years at this point. Um, you're around the same people every day, and it's difficult to come across individuals who you might disagree with. Mm-hmm. So we we try, of course, we reach out to people we disagree with, but it's just not a part of our daily format. And I think that that is something that we need to change. And I'm certainly trying to find ways to do it. But what Michael did was, he, and, and he did this along with uh, Nando Vila, who I currently yeah. host weekends with, they would just kind of like slip in a story here or there or slip in an interview uh, that maybe I should take a look at. And they wouldn't add any type of critique or commentary to anything I did, but what they would do was share content that they thought I might find compelling. And I I became addicted to his show, um, the Michael Brooks Mm -hmm. show, and he made me rethink quite a bit. And then I started reflecting on my own life. And I think this happens to a lot of people um, in their late twenties and early thirties. I realized that I work really, really hard and I produce a lot of profit. And when you really take a step back and you look at financials and you consider how much money the companies we work for make, and then we look at our salaries or look at our benefits, yeah. I mean, we give everything we have, all almost all of our time, all of our energy in building these empires for other people. And at the end, are we going to have a stable financial future? And I worry about that all the time. I don't know. I really don't know what my future is going to look like financially because everything feels so incredibly unstable in the United States right now. I realize that the things that make me happy, and I'm speaking for myself personally, the things that make me happy have nothing to do with making money. Everything that makes me happy is actually completely like, separated from my work life. It's spending time with my husband. It's taking my dog for a hike. It's spending time with my parents. It's experiencing different parts of the country or even different parts of the world with my loved ones. It's exploring. It's the ability to just lay around all day long and read incredibly long, dense articles that, mm-hmm. you know, I might not need to read for the show that I do every day, but I just, I want to really appease that intellectual curiosity that I have. But all of those things are not in any way encouraged by the structure that we're living under right now. Everything you do needs to be thought of as a financial investment. And I don't Mm. think that's the right way to live. You don't get the most out of life doing that. And so I've just, I've become increasingly supportive of labor initiatives like how about we don't have a five-day week? Maybe we need a four-day week. Yeah. Uh, how about we don't work more than eight hours a day? I mean, the 16-hour workday is a norm now, and it's mm. just unacceptable. 
So that was a long answer and I'm kind of rambling. <laughs> Sorry no, it was about a brilliant that. Answer, and it was so great to hear you talk about um, about Michael Brooks, uh, who was, as you say, just like such an incredible figure on the left and just such such a loss um, in what has been, as you said, a, a pretty shitty year. But no, it was it was great to hear you, hear you talk about that. And so, yeah, just kind of looking at, at your career, the work that you do for Jacobin with the Young Turks. I think it shows that the media landscape in the US seems kind of more diverse than uh, what we have in the UK, which is dominated by the BBC. And I think, you know, what has been a a really important part of of the development of the left in the UK has been getting left voices onto kind of mainstream programs, which has not always worked that well. So I think, you know, it's really exciting for me to see how much the like left media has developed in the US in recent years. And I'm just wondering how important you think that has been and will continue to be for the kind of development and growth of the US left. It's incredibly important. It really mm. is. I, I think that the left has to be focused on, of course, challenging capital, as we talked about earlier, but we also need robust institutions uh, to help, you know, carry out the message, to help in organizing. Recently on on weekends, Nando Vila did his commentary segment on Amazon workers in Alabama who are currently attempting to unionize. Mm. And I've just kind of gotten to a point where it's fine to be able to talk about these stories and give these efforts the exposure that they deserve. But I also think that it's important to play a role in helping to organize. So I'm not entirely sure how we can do that yet. But as he uh, was wrapping up that segment, uh, you know, I specifically asked, you know, some of these workers to reach out to us if they can with any, you know, anything that we can do to help them organize. Because the truth is one of the biggest weapons that corporate politicians and corporations themselves use against the left is the media. The media is part and parcel of the corruption that I was talking about earlier. And if we have media on the left that is uncompromised by these financial incentives, then I think that we can actually be a pretty important and valuable part in helping to organize groups uh, to unionize and to challenge their employers for, you know, a whole host of things that I think workers deserve in this country. Mm. That point about, um, I, I saw that segment where you were talking about Amazon and that was, I mean, a really incredible campaign actually that was part of a whole host of actions um, against Amazon all over the world, organized by a bunch of different groups and supported by Progressive International. I think, you know, something that is clear in both the US and the UK for different reasons is that the left is going to need to, as you say, focus much more on organizing and organizing with workers to resist the direct exploitation that they experience in their workplaces, uh, but also kind of more broadly in society. So organizing kind of tenants against landlords and these sorts of things. Um, But that's been Mm -hmm. something that I think the left has struggled to do. And I mean, partly that's because, as you said, there's been a kind of lack of institutions through which that organizing effort can happen, but also just because it's been difficult to link up like left organizations with labor movements and with kind of tenants unions and other forms of, of of social movements. How optimistic are you that the US left is going to be able to do that in the coming years? Because it, it is obviously going to be so important to have those non-electoral forms of organizing as we kind of go into a Biden presidency. 
I'm not known to be a very optimistic person, um, so it's going to be strange how I answer this question, but I do have some optimism that the left will get its act together and will find ways to uh, work with one another and organize uh, in order to actually um, apply pressure to our elected officials to do the right thing. The reason why I'm optimistic isn't because I think politicians are going to do great things out of the kindness of their mm. own hearts or that they're going to respond right away. No. But what, what I do know is that people are pretty miserable right now. People are not, they're not happy with their quality of life. Even people who have stable jobs in the United States right now are noticing that they're expected to work around the clock. It feels as though you're only alive to work. And Many people who do all the right things, they get their education, they pay off all their debts, everything is hunky-dory, they've saved for retirement. They'll find themselves in their retirement years with some sort of health issue that bankrupts them, and they're destroyed. Their entire lives are destroyed. There are so many people who have family members who have experienced that. And the anger in the country is incredibly noticeable. And I just, at some point, I really do think uh, it's going to boil over. And I don't think our elected officials are going to have much of a choice, but to do what workers are demanding gets done. And so it might start off with some strikes. It might even um, expand into a general strike. We'll see how it plays out. But the anger is there. And if Joe Biden carries out his term the way that he promised his donors, which was to say that nothing will fundamentally change under his watch. I really do think that there will be civil unrest in this country. This is so important because, I mean, looking back over the last kind of, I don't know, five, six years, this incredible movement has emerged around the Bernie campaign around like AOC and the squad. And now we've got all these kind of, you know, cool new socialist leaders have elected to kind of various offices. I'm thinking about like, where is this energy of this amazing movement going to go now? Is, you know, the future of the left just kind of fighting within the Democratic Party? That doesn't seem particularly hopeful for so many reasons, but also because it kind of exacerbates those problems that we were just talking about. How can that that energy of that movement be brought forward into uh, the next four years, which will be like so many fights will be taking place on so many different grounds? How can like the kind of the optimism of those years be be maintained and also like turned into more lasting institutions? Optimism is one way to put it. I would argue that a lot of what drove that movement was frustration and anger. And that frustration yeah. and anger is just going to continue yeah. to build, especially under uh, Biden's presidency. And so I really don't see the momentum dying down. Um, and and I'm, I'm very happy to see the moment that it was announced that Joe Biden won the election the left went into full gear. There's no question yeah. about that. I was worried that there would be a, cause I'm exhausted. I mean, everyone's exhausted. <laughs> There's no question about that. So, um, you know, everyone can use a break, but I'm very pleased to see that no one has really, no one on the left has taken a break. Of course, our mainstream media, which was, uh, very much scaremongering about Trump throughout the four years for good reason, 
uh, has taken a little bit of a break in terms of being critical in any way toward the incoming Biden administration. That was to be expected. Their attention is still heavily focused on Donald Trump and his refusal to concede. But I just think that pressure does work and we need to think about how we can push for change in multiple different ways. So electorally, I think it is important to primary uh, Democratic incumbents. I think the Democratic Party uh, needs to completely change its leadership. There's no question about that, even though Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer um, are still going to be in leadership roles during the Biden administration. But we are seeing some progress. I know it's slow, but we're seeing more and more of these Democratic challengers to incumbents who refuse to take corporate PAC money or big money donations. They're winning. They're winning in more and more of these races across the country. Uh, The Democratic Party was crying about how poorly they did in these congressional races, but it's really the corporate Democrats who have done poorly. Mm. A A lot of these progressive candidates who challenged incumbents did win. Um, so we have Marie Newman, Jamal Bowman, uh, and you know, there, these are people who are in addition to, of course, uh, the squad that we already had, uh, from the election in 2018. And so I, I think electorally, uh, we should keep doing what we're doing. Um, I think that we need to build stronger, uh, institutions, including the left media in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I, I am seeing positive progress in that regard as well. Right now, the the missing puzzle piece that I see is organizing among workers. And I'm not going to pretend like I know the right answer in how to approach that. But I want to. I want to find out like what we can do as part of left media to help workers organize, you know, Um, but that requires you know, organizing on the ground. It requires reaching out to people who are considering unionizing and asking them, hey, what can we do to help? What kind of assistance can we provide? That goes beyond just talking about it on our shows. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really interesting point because um, there have been some some kind of historic labor movement actions in recent years in the US, including things like, you know, the, the teacher strikes. And, uh, you know, you were talking about um, Amazon workers taking action. And then over the pandemic, there were, I think, Instacart and Target workers uh, trying to do a kind of a walkout as well. It does feel like the left needs to be in these spaces. I'm just wondering kind of what level, because obviously in the UK, there's like this long standing link between the Labour Party and the Labour movement. And, you know, lots of people who are in the Labour Party well, they technically should have to be members of of unions as well and can therefore kind of help to ensure that those links between the Labour movement and the Labour Party remain. What kind of um, extent is there of like actual engagement of, of leftists within the major US unions? And what are the major US unions like in terms of policy uh, and in terms of kind of militancy? Well, part of the problem is that and I I don't blame them for this, Uh, major unions have really aligned themselves with corporate Democrats. And I wasn't even fully aware of how how much of a problem this was until um, Cenk Uger, you know, the CEO of the Young Turks and my regular Mm -hmm. co-host, started running for Congress. And the... The unions, both, you know, the the teachers union, IATSE, which is, you know, a a union here for uh, people who work in production, um, you know, the entertainment industry, they backed Mm -hmm. Christy Smith, who was the corporate Democrat candidate 
who voted against labor over and over and over again as an assembly member in the state of California. And so I was super skeptical of IATSE when I found out about that because I was like, why would you guys, as a union, endorse this candidate who has, she's put action behind hurting employees, you know, as someone Mm -hmm. who has voted on these policies. Uh, But then I realized that these unions, I mean, it's not like they had much of a choice. I mean, historically speaking, and I'm talking about recent history, it's not like they had um, you know, a labor party or a third party that actually cares about workers' rights uh, running in these elections or having any real representation in the U.S. Uh, so, of course, they're going to align themselves with uh, corporate Democrats like Christy Smith. I just, I, and the problem is so bad that even in instances where you have a progressive um, who's running on Medicare for all and all the policies that we want, even when you have a progressive running against that corporate Democrat they'll still side with a corporate Democrat because I think they understand power. And I think they understand that the chips are usually going to fall in the direction of corruption in, in the U S and it's, it's pretty disastrous. And I Mm. I don't know what the right answer is. Mm. I want to talk a bit now about um, another massive issue, uh, which is climate breakdown. Um, and I mean, in the US, it's so obviously already with you, like whether you're talking about kind of tropical storms or wildfires or or whatever. Biden obviously kind of came in with these these pledges on on climate. Do you think he's actually going to follow through on any of that? And I mean, obviously, it's going to be enough. But kind of, is there going to be any scope for kind of pressuring him into a, a, a more expansive Green New Deal type post pandemic recovery package? I'm a little more realistic on that. I I think that Biden appears to have moved a little tiny bit to the left on that issue, Uh, but I don't think he's going to do what it takes uh, to move closer to a Green New Deal type policy. The reason why it really, look, it really depends on how Joe Biden plans on conducting business as a politician. And if the way he campaigned is any indication, he's corruptible. He's just very corruptible Mm -hmm. and has no problem taking money from, let's say, the fossil fuel industry, which is why on the debate stage, he was debating with Trump over who loves fracking more. I mean, it was just (laughs) insane. It was insane to watch that. And so the fossil fuel industry is still very much invested in pushing for fossil fuels. They are pivoting toward renewable energy with the exception of ExxonMobil. ExxonMobil seems uh, firm in their decision to keep their focus on fossil fuels, but other fossil fuel companies are now kind of shifting uh, their research and development on renewables because they understand that that's where the future is and they want to be prepared to make money off of that. So, Biden is much like Obama in that he will go in the direction that his corporate donors want him to go in. And yeah. if these fossil fuel companies have decided, no, you know what, at this point, we know we know the future is renewable energy, so we're going to drop the fossil fuels and focus on that. I think Biden will go along with that. But based on what ExxonMobil has stated, it doesn't seem likely it's going to happen anytime soon. And when you really take a step back and you do a cost-benefit analysis purely on economics, I mean, there should be a moral component to it in, in you know, your analysis, of course, but that's not how these politicians operate. They think about 
how things impact the economy or how things impact our resources. It's just, it's crazy that we just keep hurting our world, our country, everything, economically speaking as well, just to carry out what's in the best interest of these fossil fuel companies that are paying massive campaign contributions to our politicians. Like it, we spend way more on, you know, helping people who have been victimized by these climate-fueled uh, extreme weather events. We could have actually saved a lot more money if we did the right thing earlier, but, you know, doesn't matter. I mean, what we end up doing is we privatize the gains, socialize the losses. That's what we do in the United States on almost every single issue. Mm. That is all we have time for today. I'm hesitant to leave it on such a kind of, um, I don't know, slightly pessimistic note, but I think, you know, you're right uh, to point out that there are these huge challenges that we're facing in in the coming years. I mean, all over the world, not just in the US, and that um, we have a lot of, of building to do in order to get to a position where we might be able to actually stop successfully resisting. But yeah, I mean, I think you're also right to say that the conditions that gave rise to the kind of resurgence on the left that we saw in the wake of the financial crisis aren't going away. And if anything, they're going to get, they're going to get much, much worse. So it's about translating that anger uh, and that desire for change into a kind of a positive movement that's actually able to kind of disrupt power in capitalist societies. We have a lot of work ahead of us. uh, But The good news is, and I'll leave it at this optimistic note, uh, we have far more people on our side who who want change, who feel the anger, who want a better society to live in. And all we need to do is find ways to persuade these people to join us. Thank you so much, Anna Kasparian, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. Thank you so much.